and welcome to the Unheard Weekly podcast with me, Aisha Hazarika. This is the podcast where we explore issues which our listeners think uh, are important, but largely underreported in the mainstream media. And I'm delighted this week to be joined by two guests. We have Sundar Katwala, director of the think tank British Future and a regular Unheard contributor, and another Unheard contributor, Philip Blonde, who is also director of the think tank Res Publica. Thank you so much both for joining me today. How are you? Well, fair, fair to moderate, I think. Oh, Bearing up under the good weather. Uh, how are we finding the weather? Just quickly, I'm struggling. I'm not happy with it. I love it. I adore it. It feels it feels like the continent has come to us in this time of Brexit. <laughs> and it feels like European solace for northern sort of English uh, woes. I feel it's contributing to our productivity crisis. Oh, God, so many things <laughs> contribute to that. Right. OK, now, actually, Philip, we are... No, Sundar, sorry. I'm going to come to you um, first for your underreported story. Well, I don't think anyone would say the World Cup has been an underreported story. Some of us managing to focus more on that than, than most other things this week. But there's a conversation we haven't been having about England at the World Cup, which is the um, unusual and high and highest ever level of ethnic diversity of our squad. Um, 11 of the 23 of the players that we've taken out as the best of young England to is Russia. Is this our most diverse? Our most diverse squad by quite a long way. And it hasn't been noticed because there's nothing much to notice. Something would have been immensely contentious, I think, when I was a teenager watching football matches. is just part of the everyday furniture of young England. And I think that reflects the England of people in their 20s uh, and people in classrooms. And so we've made that change. And and perhaps we haven't noticed how deeply it's gone. And I think that's a really interesting point um, you make because lots of businesses, sectors, organisations go out of their way to celebrate a certain kind of target being hit on diversity. And this hasn't really been talked about. And do you think that is a, a net positive? It's sort of been done um, by accident rather than design. It's just about talent. It's not about... Yeah, football's meritocratic as a level playing field and if you don't pick the best players somebody else will so I think I think sport has that has that opportunity but this was very significantly contested we have the debate you know can you be black and British for some decades and can you be black and English is still a kind of unfamiliar debate when we talk about Englishness but we had that debate in a very ferocious way at football in the late 1970s and by the early mid 80s and yet by by the time of sort of the 1986 World Cup it's the first time a, a black player actually plays in the World Cup for England John right. Barnes comes on it's not that long ago and takes on Diego Maradona um, that was still a new thing you still had elements of the far right saying we won't count the black goals if they're scored which of course you can't watch too many matches if you're not going to count some of the goals and yet that's and very precious that's completely gone and I think England and Englishness for young people represent all of the people born in England, who belong to England, who are part of England. And that is now a multi-ethnic, multi-faith identity. It's only in football that we see that. It's interesting because certainly um, I have black friends who've said, I feel really naturally for the first time ever unbelievably comfortable about England in the World Cup and I feel like I can join in. Uh, Philip, what, what's your sort of take on this? Well, I, I agree with what uh, Sunder's saying and I think it reflects really sort of a core British tradition that has never really believed in race. We're almost unique in Europe in not having a racial 
identity. We, we, you know, whereas lots of other nation states were founded on precisely that. But I think we shouldn't take us away that diversity is a good that isn't experienced in the same way across the country. So London is incredibly diverse, but you can go to parts of of our country that feel very undiverse. And I think if you look like at where I grew up, you know, you know uh, or indeed where I grew up um, in in Liverpool, and so some areas are far less diverse. And we've actually created in certain parts of our country, from Wales to to Northern England, and indeed in parts of uh, of Scotland uh, and Northern Ireland, areas that actually remain fairly uh, ethnically homogeneous. And what is really interesting, I'm sure work must have been done on that, is how those areas relate to an experience that isn't necessarily in their own hinterland. And and I think it's important to, to recognise that this diversity is very much an urban context, but even then, not even in all urban places. So would you think that somebody from an area, let's say very rural village somewhere, very white, would not be able to enjoy the World Cup because I'm not of saying, I'm the not, fact it's very I'm not diverse. saying that. What I'm saying is what's interesting is people's experience on television of diversity or of culture of diversity might not reflect their own lived experiences. And what's really, I think, interesting is, um, so if you look at... Uh, any number of um, studies that have been done post the Brexit referendum on the characteristics of those areas. Generally speaking, though not always, less diverse areas tended to vote, oh, absolutely. vote, vote for Leave. So what's interesting to me, and I don't know, and I'd be interested, I'm sure Sunder's um, fine think tank has done work on this, is how people who don't experience diversity in the immediate vicinity experience it when it's kind of on the TV or in a, in a broader scope. Well, this, this is very important, I think, because um, what makes a difference to your experience and comfort with diversity in the end is real lived contact, especially mm. if it is sustained, and therefore you have high confidence about diversity in the most diverse areas. Diversity spreads out, it's been spreading out, and so it's very much in the suburbs as well as the cities and so on. What is difficult is if you have the proximity of diversity 20 miles up the road with people who you haven't met and you don't know what they're doing. And then what is especially difficult is to be is to be at the very periphery in the least diverse areas, very unlikely to have contact, a big age gap, as well as a class gap and a and contact a gap. gap. And then and then in a way the BBC and these things that show us the picture of the nation are very important. But that, yeah. that might be quite worrying. You watch the news. But that's that's where the England team is, is rather doing something very important as a more in common identity. It belongs to the towns, it belongs to the cities, it belongs, I think, the to the shires. urban classrooms, it belongs to the shires. You can see your England in this England. If you can't, then you know, that's very sad well, if my sense of I, owning I, this England means that you are dispossessed of. I think the um, actually I actually want to come on to the article that that you wrote for for Un, unheard in a minute. But I think one of the things that's very interesting about this is that I think a lot of Brexit, I think a lot of discussion about identity politics in this country um, points to actually England having a bit of an identity crisis about it. It's like coming from Scotland, I feel really clear about what it is to be Scottish and very proud of that. Welsh as well, Northern Irish. I think England has actually suffered a kind of existential crisis. And this football team has helped like people feel for the first time really naturally sort of at ease with Englishness. That, that does help and that has happened and that is organic and actually... 
football changed Englishness 20 years ago. We have footballs coming home, you're 96. I felt that happen when I was in my 20s. The problem is it's been left entirely to football. We've only got a cricket team, a rugby team and an agnostic church somewhere. There are only English institutions. I saw John Denham give a very powerful um, lecture at the Commons as part of the Speaker's series saying there's no place to have the discussion about England. There are no forums for the discussion about England. You you create a Scottish bit and a Welsh bit and a Northern Irish bit and then Britain and England, you still think they're the same. And so you get a frustration that you haven't created any political space. Remarkably, I think, perfunctory, the political engagement with English. We've seen ministers scrabbling to fly the flag from the third game onwards because they were asked to by the Sun newspaper. But that is the sum total, I think, no, of the I agree. engagement with England. And it's, there's what? been a big, sorry, for, there's been a big political fear. I mean, I mean the, the English votes for English laws thing just sort of backfired quite sort of badly that, that Cameron came into to to sort of try and address some of that. And actually, you're right, John Denham has done some quite important work along this thing. Philip, you wanted to come in. Well, I think this is interesting because if you... um, I think there's a a relative absence of a nationalist vote in England because England has never been purely nationalist. England has always been imperial since the time of Athelstane. It's always been actually an internationalist identity. And we've never done sort of a nationalism because in a sense, as, as an imperial or expansive power, we've always tried to create forms of identity that lock together. So it's much easier to be comfortable within a more nationalist idiom in a Welsh or Irish or um, Scottish. But but it, it seems odd and anachronistic, um, though not without appeal, to be, to be nationalist as English. And I think what we really need to discover, and I still defend the notion of Britishness, is what uh, post-Brexit this new British internationalist mm. uh, idiom might be. Um, and um, and so I, I sort of I, I, I quite welcome uh, Britain not being comfortable in some sort of vestigial retreat into an ethnicity because we've never done that and I don't want us to start doing it now. No, it's I I, I think that's right and I think you know hopefully um, this. English. I mean, look, this this football team. I don't even like football, and I don't even like the England football team. And I was cheering on England with my heart palpitating with those um, sort of penalties. But you're right. We have to try and find a new, positive, global, outward-looking sense of what it is to be British as we as we exit the what's EU. What's our contribution to the world? Yeah, and, where's our, and why our, we should be proud of yeah, it? Yeah, what's our place in in, in mm. the world now? Moving from this, you know, our great history of our empire and being very mm. dominant to sort of to something different. But Sundar, I just want to um, come to your article. Um, could you just give us a little uh, summary because you made a very interesting case about how demographics and race is changing in this country. I think people are always projecting demographics as political destiny they get a point they look at a trend and they draw a line ever upwards and say there will be much more ethnic diversity therefore this political party will always win or this will happen and I I think this is just much too deterministic and the real lived story of race over 50 years or 30 years will will be very different to how we experience it and the, the rise of people of mixed ethnicity I think is the, is the hidden story of our diversity which is both more diverse because it's coming from all over the place but also actually it becomes less diverse as well sometimes when people of mixed ethnicity um, there are a million people who tick that box in the census there are actually two million people of mixed ethnic heritage some of them have ticked the black box some of them have ticked the white British 
box and that we, we sort of imply that anyone who's ever had a sort of Indian grandparent like Sebastian Coe is going to be in the sort of ethnic minority population. Mm. What the majority, what the minority is, will, will blur in an interesting way. Um, a tenth of couples in this country uh, cross ethnic lines. A tenth of people live in households that cross ethnic lines. We worry a lot about our segregation on our separateness, and we don't notice it's under our very nose. Yeah. Under our very noses, or somebody's been integrating. You know, that's my sort of personal uh, background. Uh, you know, I'm very much a child of the NHS because um, I was born in an NHS hospital, like so many other people were. My dad was an Indian doctor. My mother was an, a nurse from Cork in Ireland. So they met in the NHS, which is where you find a lot of Indian doctors and Irish nurses. And so that's that's the sort of that's the story that's the story of an identity that is never going to fit into an identity politics of communities of communities, multiculturalism. Yeah. I am a lapsed Irish Catholic, <laughs> half Indian agnostic. I'm not really I am not really looking for community. Well, leader. I remember um after the the big hoo-ha about the BBC uh doing that thing about Enoch Powell's the marking the anniversary of the Enoch Powell's rivers of, of blood speech there was a fantastic thing on twitter which was kind of sort of rivers of, of love and it was a whole thing of sort of you know integrated families and and mixed racial families and it was just a very easy but optical reminder of wow actually we, we don't really sort of talk about that and i agree with the way you describe how we look at i hate this phrase b-a-m-e mm. like we're all one big black or beige or brown lump and I think it's a real failure of politicians and policymakers to take a more nuanced look at the different and, and like you say, changing um, racial profile of, of this country. Philip, what are your thoughts? Well, I, I, I think um, I really like Sunder's good story and good narrative. And I think um, I think that resonates. But there's also some emergent evidence to the contrary. So... Um, if you look at America, for example, according to Pew Research, they've never been so polarised and, and they're dividing along a values divide. So they even have different TV ses, uh, stations for their different beliefs. So Democrats watch CNN, um, Republicans watch Fox. But one of the factors that is in um, present in America is race and race as a divide and race as a suspicion. And I think that we're experiencing cultural divides uh, now and there's signs of an emergent values division. And I just fear that that values division might become sticky in this country and start sticking to those areas where that are less diverse. And so if you look at the fate of the white working class and particularly white working class youth, they're almost the worst performing by certain indices of any group in terms of outcomes. So you can see that unless we sort of um, solve this at a broader level, you can see countervailing uh, currents as well. What is important, though, I think, is that the story of polarisation in America, which I think is very stark, is, I think, deep and profound in a way that there are barriers to that in, in Britain. Partly it's that we have not as strong uh, a religious uh, division between the faithful and the secular that they have, partly it's geography. Partly it's a story about race, a mixed race as well, because it, being mixed race in America 
is actually very much a minority identity because three quarters of people who are mixed race marry somebody mixed race or black. And so you become part of the minorities. Three quarters of people who are mixed race in Britain marry somebody who's white British, which is just below the national average. So it becomes very much a bridging identity. Yeah. I think this is this is the question of integration, really. An integrated society is intermarriageable across ethnic lines, across faith lines and across mm. class lines. We've become a lot more intermarriageable across ethnic lines, I, probably more... less so across graduates and non-graduates I, and I social class that. lines. I think, I think a, that's the division. A lot more tolerant of that because it was not that long ago that interracial marriage was still viewed with a degree of fear and suspicion and, and yet, hostility and in yet, this country. Let's not be too sanguine because because all across Europe there's a counter-narrative taking place. And this is, I think, less about race and more about belief. So what you have is overwhelming concerns about migration and terrorism and the tacit and sometimes overt association of that with Islam and Muslim migration. So, so what you have in terms of you know the return of values based division is is the the is a genuine and quite widespread across europe fear of um muslim migration and what that means to the values settlement of nations now i'm sure it's 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 different everywhere but i think that's part of the broad trend that we need to at least recognize so we don't have an overly sanguine and that's, picture that's an incredibly important challenge i think but mm. there's a real test that i think a lot of the european populists fail which is my integration mm. test which is when we demand that muslim migrants to a country integrate when people who want to integrate try to do so do we say they can fully belong and i think the fd in germany and mr salvini in italy they always fail that test they demand that people integrate and then they never accept people but, who will but the but point I'm have to because so, we we are sort of um That's exciting yeah issue. <laughs> I, I, I know i'm sorry we've just been um so philip we are going to come to you what's your underreported story of the week well i think the the underreported uh story is 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 really the ongoing determination of class in britain i mean we have a sort of in the diversity wars I think all too often what we have are advantaged middle-class groups um, claiming victimhood in order to advantage themselves more. And all of this goes on against the background of what is really determinative, which remains the case in this country, which is class and the relationship of class with place. It still remains true. And David Blunker quoted this over, I think, 15 years ago, that the single most successful social indicators of where you will um, end up remain the postcode where you're born and also the educational level of your mother. And those two mixed together are almost like fate. And if you happen to be um, working class and in the wrong place, you're more or less at the lowest rung if you take, for instance, white working class males, um, as I mentioned earlier, they are the least well-performing group in terms of educational attainment, entrance to university. They are the most excluded and they have no advocates. Whereas, um, whereas almost, depending where you are, everyone else has advocates arguing for them. So I think that class remains the great unaddressed social determinant, I would argue. It's the overarching social determinant of, of and driver of inequality um, in, in our society. And I've been some a decade now or, or more in, in public policy. And the single most if 
successful way, in my view, to tackle uh, inequality is to mix the fates of middle class and working class people. And how um, do you do that? Well, I think sort of one example might be is look at London schools. So we've had countless people claiming uh, from Lord Adonis uh, and others that their innovations are drove London school performance attainment um, from a very low level to a high level. But actually, the evidence shows from study by the AIFS, the Institute of Education, there is no evidence that any educational innovation has had any impact at all. But my colleague at ResPublica, Mark Moran, pointed out and did his own regression analysis on house price values and mixing of working class and middle class in schools. And that does show a fairly direct relationship that essentially the more expensive housing got, the more the middle classes couldn't afford to opt out of education and the more they mix the fate of their children with working class uh, schools in London. There are other factors, but migrant families often um, put a high premium on the value of education. So you get middle class uh, families mixing with aspirant migrant families and it creates a very, very good mix. And it's the absence of that mixing all too often in, in, in other parts of our country that, that essentially leaves working class people essentially where they are. And one of the fascinating things about forms of intervention is how we've moved so far away from class-based analysis. Everything has become around individual responses and what we can do to incentivize individuals. And by and large and predominantly, that leaves things where they are. And I think the great lesson, if we genuinely want to tackle things like endemic uh, class-based inequality, is to, is to start to rethink the problem of class and how we might make interventions in terms of class that could actually stop it being so dreadfully determinative. Sundar, what's your sort of take on that? I also want to ask you about one thing because this, the white working class issue is a very, very big, big issue. And often when commentators, particularly on the right, talk about class, it is always followed by the white working class. What about black working class? What about Bengali working class? Is, class, is working class just white? Well, the, 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 it isn't. And actually, that's a lens through which to work out actually what what is class as socioeconomics, what is class as culture and identity, what, what are the positive and negative aspects of different uh, types of cultural identity that you might have in terms of your opportunities or your aspirations. I think Philip has two different stories here that both are important but it's worth teasing them out one is that place really matters mm -hmm. and i think i think that is a big story of this moment and the geographic polarization is very much about the age and educational polarization i thought because we've got our first ever geographer as prime minister i thought if she could just tear herself away from sort of regulatory alignment i thought you had a prime minister actually who really knew that place mattered and might have been going to do something about it. But I think that's rather, that's, rather, that's rather fizzled out. But that sense of localised engine, the different ways you can do that, there used to be think tanks on the right that would say, well, you know, Sunderland's never going to make it, tell people from Sunderland to get on their bike, which is a ridiculous thing to do. But actually the distribution of power opportunity mm -hmm. around this country is very important. And then there's a the story that class really matters. And I think that has got more complicated in diversity. And I think the London School says something very important because you've got a story of lost social mobility. Could John Major happen today? And Alan Milburn has talked a lot about that. And from 
the minority communities who were working class, you have the ongoing experience of intergenerational mobility where the children of bus drivers do get to be the Home Secretary and the Mayor of London. So you actually have people who've broken the class boundary and other people who can't. So why is it? Why does the Asian working class advance in that way, including groups we thought would be left behind, like Bangladesh and Pakistani girls, and aspects of the white and black working class yeah. get left out? Is it class or is it cultural you, identity? You make a very powerful point about um, white working class boys, and actually there's something that a lot of... Uh, in fact, Georgia Gould, mm-hmm. who's leader of Camden Council, has done quite a lot of work on this. Black working class boys are also stubbornly stuck um, alongside white working class well, boys, what? and also in terms of the criminal justice system and all that this is an incredibly interesting complex point so london is fantastic if you're working class in terms of the pathways and opportunities that are open to you because you've got this hugely successful rich culture being mashed up in the that's like 1980s language from tech with a working class culture you have multiple pathways multiple opportunities and in that situation culture or an aspirant culture that we do know is in um, uh, is in um, many migrant families really succeeds but we know for instance with black boys they do very well up to the age of puberty but at puberty where they all too often have um, a peer group that engages in in dangerous stroke, criminal stroke, kind of non-educational behaviour, they can get sucked into that in a very dangerous fashion. So the story about that is, in terms of black working classes, I think in London, more cultural. The story about uh, white working class outside of London is more one of place. And I've always argued that it's those two things together, class and place, that become so determinative and fixed. Because I think you are much more socially mobile if you're working class and in London than if you're working class and in Sunderland. But it's not just London versus the rest. I mean, I think think gender really matters. I think generations really matter. I think geography really matters as well. Take the West Midlands, which is our youngest region. If you were the mayor of the West Midlands, Andy Street, um, Mm. the danger is that people will be saying, look, who are you going to choose? Are you going to advance the, the, you know, your large black and Asian minority populations? Are you going to think about the white working class and so on? What you want to say is how is opportunity in the West Midlands going to be equally open to all the children in the classrooms? That is a that is about avoiding this competing grievances narrative and having a fairness frame that says these different things might be barriers yeah. and we do all of them. I, I mean, I, I would... I would absolutely endorse that. I mean, my my anxiety about how this argument is always framed, it, it's quite sort of pitting people against each other, whereas I think the class issue bisects quite a few races, places, absolutely. I mean, you wrote a, a, a great article for, for Unheard about the Northern Powerhouse and, and what's happening in, in the North. I know you, not, you say it's not just about sort of London and the rest of the country, but... I mean, the disproportionate, understandably, attention and love and investment and excitement and opportunity that is in London is just not shared out with the rest of the country. And it should be. We all talk about the Northern Paris. Every political party talks about sharing the wealth mm. around the country, but they're not doing it. It's, it in, in the article, so there's two kind of narratives and and the two narratives aren't necessarily opposed and wrong. And one is the standard narrative that the North just lacks the right amount of investment, the right amount of money, the right amount of transport and infrastructure. Uh, And if only it had that, it 
things would be equal. Um, but I don't think the evidence supports that. And um, there's been some very interesting work done on, on the North. Now, if you think of the North, that during the Industrial Revolution, which began in the North, the population of, of the North went up by four times. And it sucked in, uh, essentially, low-skilled labour from Ireland and from, and from Scotland and from the rest of the country. And what uh, the latest research shows is that actually... <clears throat> Those people of low skill who moved into the north for essentially lots of mass low-skilled jobs remained, whereas the educated, the talented, the entrepreneurial left. Now, what's really interesting is that they apparently started leaving even at the height of the success of the uh, Industrial, Industrial Revolution. Revolution. So they didn't leave at the end of it. They started to, to leave and even was when it was... That? Probably because the demands of the Industrial Revolution were all low skill and these were highly educated people and they went down south to do finance, to do more complex work where their opportunities would be more rewarded. And, and so what the North actually has is... Um, too much of a monoculture of um, a class-based... It's essentially acre upon acre of um, people uh, who are too similar in terms of socioeconomic um, uh, framework and settlement who don't meet people who enough from areas that... from backgrounds that are very, very different. And what that means is, is they don't get the mixing, the interpenetration that's present in London that enables them to have that sort of, um, that ski jump into the opportunities that they need. Isn't and the conclusion from that is, we, if we want to save the North, if we want to tackle the inequalities of place, we've got to have ways to attract uh, uh, both retain and attract the more educated, entrepreneurial and skilled back to these places. And isn't part of that um, not just obviously the, the mm. investment in the infrastructure, it's kind of sending the sexy industries there as well. The creative industry has been a big debate about Channel 4 moving out of London. Mm. I actually think that would be a very, very good thing to do. I think it's it? almost a bit of a half measure where Channel 4 has been lobbying. to. I mean, everyone yeah. wants a bit of Channel 4 and they've been lobbying to keep as much in, in London. I think if you really get into the polarisation we've got, it's it looks really impossible to do it when you say it's London versus everywhere. The really interesting polarisation, I think, is from Manchester to Wigan and across Manchester or from Newcastle to Hartlepool. And what do those urban centres that have got business, uh, that have got um, universities there. Do those opportunities feel relevant on the other side of the city and 20 miles down the road? And often they don't, because if you said to those university cities, do you have responsibilities to this place and to this region, or are you a sort of island of cosmopolitanness saying, you know, we, we value our international links? Well, if you valued your local roots and your links, you'd actually have more political and social permission mm. actually to be the global story well, that you want and that you're struggling with. Look, well, it, fantastically interesting topic. I mean, I feel like we could talk about this for, for hours. I mean, just we could all do a whole thing on this, um, but we have to move on. Right. We are now moving to my favourite section of the show where we do our heroes and villains of the week. Sunder, your hero. The only hero you can choose this week is Gareth Southgate, the very modern model of an <laughs> English leader. I would uh, leader. like to point out Sunder's wearing a waistcoat in homage to, to I'm wearing to a waistcoat Southgate. every day until we go out of this World Cup. He has not just brought back the waistcoat, actually, but as a style of leadership, it's a very understated style. It's not the 
alpha style or shouting at people, play for the badge, play for the jersey or throwing his weight around. It's a very, it's slightly technocratic. Um, it's very professionalised. Um, he studied how penalties should not be a lottery and it's very, it's very soft. It's a very soft style of leadership, actually. And I, I, there'll be enormous numbers of courses across industry how to learn from Gareth Southgate. But I hope that's a lesson people take from But that. also, I think one of the... His backstory is incredible as well, which I think has lent him this empathy. The fact that, you know, his own backstory of missing the, the penalty and, and penalties being the great cloud that hung over um, the English football team. And it, it also goes to show that you can... You can right a wrong in your past. Redemption and a way forward, Philip. Right. What a lovely entry. Um, yes, well, I'm, I'm the opposite of redemption because I'm going to name the villain. Uh, my villain uh, of today is especially hapless Russian assassins who, um, you know, no doubt listeners will recall um, the uh, very... Uh, unpleasant murder of Alexander Litvinenko. But his assassins spilled uh, the radioactive substance that poisoned him on the planes going out, on the planes going back, in their hotel room, across London streets, everywhere, gushing amounts of radiation. And it seems that, once again, the Russians, in their assassination uh, attempt, haven't been particularly tidy with the Novacek that they had left over. And um, That and makes me feel it, it was a man. That makes me feel confident it was a male it assassin not it, tidying up after it himself. It probably was, you know. And, and um, there's lots of competing theories about why they did it. There's even some analysis that to progress in the Russian Foreign Intelligence Service, you have to do something out of the ordinary in order to get noticed and promoted. So there are some people uh, in the intelligence community who argue this might be a bit of a lone mad sort of quest for career to take out a Russian traitor. But anyway... You're talking the, about the Skripals. The yeah. um, who, And do we who, think this consequence, this is this um, couple um, found very nearby, very tragic, yeah. do we think this is just a, a, a cock-up rather than another designed attack? There's no sense for that these people would be targets, so it's quite likely, uh, unless it's kind of indiscriminate, something else which that doesn't seem likely that they've happened across it's in the vicinity they happened across some discarded elements uh which again just shows that probably when when making their escape after the attack they just got rid of the substance the, the trouble is is it it's pretty time indefinite it doesn't degrade yeah. very much so it just Absolutely, and I think one of you the know, I mean tidy uh, up uh, always tidy up people. It's very important. But one of the things that um, the biochemical expert was saying when the whole Shripal thing happened mm. was that we just don't know the consequences. They were saying they may have to monitor birth defects in Gosh. the area for for, for years to come. Mm -hmm. So there is a severe public health consequence. It's, of course, it's right that Cobra has been um, convened, but I, I have some sympathy with the local authorities because nobody really knows how to clean this up. Well, thank you so much to my brilliant guests, um, Sundar and Philip, for an absolutely fascinating discussion. I feel like we could have literally gone on all day. Thanks very much um, for your sort of thoughtful contribution. If you want to read the excellent articles that Philip and Sundar have written, please do check out the Unheard website where their articles are, plus lots of other uh, fascinating content. Thank you very much to my guests. You've been listening to the Unheard weekly podcast with me, Aisha Hazarika. Tune in again next week.